0: An easy way of doing that is by getting the runner's high.
1: By getting runner's high, you mean like a little bit of endorphin here and there?
0: Well, that's the interesting thing. So for a long time, it's been thought that the runner's high was actually due to endorphins. Right. But now a group of researchers is actually suggesting that it might be a result of this chemical called anandamide. Anandamide. Anandamide, which is the, actually the same, uh, the receptors that anandamide works on are the same receptors that THC, the active ingredient in marijuana, works on. Wow. It's, it's kind of a different system they're suggesting here for actually what causes the runner's
1: High. THC, is it like tender hot care? <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's it's some kind of care. We don't really want to know. But the interesting thing is that this suggests that the euphoria that's felt may be completely different than the endorphin rush, rather than it might be more akin to the marijuana high. Oh, wow. Maybe maybe there's uh, interesting things yet to be learned from that. Running, smoking, running. It's a tough choice, man. Maybe you can do both at the same time, and then you'll get the supreme benefit. Oh, wow. Team. You're a genius. I, you know, I should have been an author of this study. Uh, which, uh, this was in the uh, recent edition of Neuro Report, and it was study done by Arne Dietrich at
1: Georgia Tech. So, Charles, what happens when you get into a defensive situation and you need to uh, ward off a missile or a jetliner that's going to crash into you? Uh, I think I
0: use the plus one shield of uh, retaliation. Well, which video game is that from? (laughs) That's from the Advanced Dungeons & Dragons Collector's Edition, which you need 2D12. Anyway, that's for (laughs) for all the D&D nerds out there.
1: So, it turns out the Germans are thinking of uh, using fog as a, a defense device. Fog, okay. Fog.
0: I've never heard that for warding off missiles.
1: Well, especially for nuclear power plants. They think it's a good way to camouflage it away from uh, commercial jetliners, which may be inclined to grab uh, into one of these.
0: Right, right. So, do they They propose uh, establishing a constant fog around the nuclear power plant? Is that what they're... Something
1: like that. Like, they would <laughs> alert and these devices would emit fog and then within like, you know, 30 seconds or so, the entire region would be covered in such a way that the aircraft lose sight of it.
0: What, what's this device that's creating the fog? Is this water vaporizer or something like that?
1: Probably. Uh, it, this is just uh, you know a preliminary proposal, and a lot of people think it could be just a proposal since you can't control the weather, you don't know where and when right. how the wind's going to blow this fog away anyways.
0: Well, they should just move all of the nuclear power plants to somewhere like Scotland or someplace perpetually foggy, and uh-huh. they don't have to worry about it.
1: Right. The only problem is that if they have a, a missile with a GPS uh, tracker on it, it, it doesn't seem to work at all. <laughs>
0: Well, you know, we'll have to have fogger for the GPS system then. All right. Well, if you want to learn more about fogging up their nuclear power plants... Uh, they should go to the newscientists.com. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Rocks, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, coming up next, Mr. Andrew Mishkin will join us to discuss the Mars Explorer Project. So stay tuned. Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, the recent landing of the Mars Explorer rover has turned our attention once again to the Red Planet, and the upcoming landing of a second vehicle will grant us a view of the opposite side of the planet. These missions are just a small part of the many explorations of Mars now underway that may shed light if life could have evolved on Mars. Well, joining us today on Berkeley Grox to give us a glimpse into uh, these Mars missions is Mr. Andrew Mishkin. Mr. Mishkin is a senior systems engineer at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory where he has been involved in the development of various robotic vehicles and their subsystems for more than 15 years. He was a key member of the team that designed, developed, and finally operated the Sojourner rover that captured the imagination of the public during the Mars Pathfinder missions in the summer of 1997. He has recently written a book entitled Sojourner, an insider's view of the Mars Pathfinder mission. And Mr. Mishkin is now part of the Mars Exploration Rover project that has just landed a new rover on Mars and will be landing a second rover in about three weeks. Uh, Mr. Mishkin, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley
2: Grox. Well, thank you very much
0: for having me. Uh, well, it's truly our pleasure, and I think uh, most of the public is watching with eager anticipation the journey of the recent Mars exploration rover. I'm curious if you can tell us right now, uh, what's, what's the latest status on uh, this rover?
2: Well, the Spirit rover is very healthy. We're really pleased with it, and we're days from uh, driving it off the lander and on to the actual surface of Mars, where we're going to begin our exploration.
0: I see. And why is it taking so long to actually move the rover off the platform?
2: Well, we're going through all of the checkouts and deployments. So for example, in the last couple of days we finally stood the rover up and unfolded it. It's been described as, as like reverse origami because the rover is, is crouched down and has all of its wheels turned in so that it could fit in the lander during the, the trip to Mars. So now we've stood it up, extended the wheels, locked them in place, and now we're going to be adjusting the orientation of the rover to a safe direction to drive off the lander and onto the surface.
0: I see. And- and uh, how do you, how do you determine a safe direction for it to go
2: Well, we both determine what the the attitude is of the lander. We look at where the airbags are, and we had one airbag that was in our prime drive-off direction that uh, we were unable to get fully retracted out of the way, and we were concerned about that possibly snagging one of our solar panels as we drove off. And so what we're going to do is turn about 120 degrees off to the right that looks safe, get images as we're doing those turns to make sure that uh, it's clear in that direction. And once we've assessed that those images we expect to be driving off.
0: I see. And how does the terrain look uh, around where the rover landed?
2: Well, it mostly looks very uh, nice and flat with a uh, number of small rocks. And in fact, would never have expected it before we got to Mars this time, but it looks like we'll be able to drive a good distance in this terrain. And one thing that's kind of exciting is there's some hills that are about two kilometers or so away, and it looks like the scientists are interested in heading off in that direction. So mm. we'll just see how close we get.
0: Wow, wow. So what, what is it that the uh, rover is going to try and do on Mars during this journey?
2: Well, what we're going to be doing is a a geology mission to assess really the history of the rocks and see whether there was the presence of water at this location. A Gusev crater where we're sitting um, has been hypothesized to have been a crater lake sometime in Mars history and what we're going to try to do is see whether that hypothesis is correct.
0: I see. And how's the uh, rover going to go about doing this?
2: Well, we're going to uh, basically drive up and and touch rocks. We're going to put a number of spectrometers onto targets and test both the elemental and uh, mineralogical makeup of the rocks. We have what we call the RAT, for the rock abrasion tool that we use to uh, scrape off the outer surface of rocks, get past the the weathered outer surface and to the inside. And we also have a a microscopic imager that gives us a close-up view of the structure of the rocks so we'll be applying those and again these number of spectrometers to get uh, a lot of data for science analysis
0: and is this the uh, same uh, sort of mission that the companion ship will also be working on
2: Uh, Yes. The the Opportunity Rover, when it lands uh, on the opposite side of the planet, it will be doing a similar mission. The difference is in the landing site that's been selected, which we often refer to as the hematite site, Mm -hmm. because from orbit we've been able to tell that there's the presence of of gray hematite at this other site, and that type of mineral usually forms in the presence of water. Mm. So we're going to that site because it looks like the mineralogy would indicate that there was water there at one point, while the site that we're at now, it just looks like based on the feature that it is, that it's a, a crater that has a, a valley that feeds into it that would have been a direction for water to flow, that, that water might have existed there. Yeah, I
0: see, I see. Uh, so, how are these missions then different from uh, the Beagle 2 mission?
2: Well, Beagle 2 was specifically to be a, a life finding mission that had a number of instruments on it to assess whether life was currently present, but if it had succeeded, it would have been able to only examine the area of soil or rock that was literally within reach of the lander. It would reach out an arm and apply instruments on the surface right next to the lander. The Mars Exploration Rover mission, in contrast, was designed to cover a significant amount of ground and get to a number of distinct rocks and soil in order to, to assess a number of different locations.
0: There's some uh, logistical issues for communicating with Mars since it's so far away. How exactly uh, do you compensate, I guess, for the time lag?
2: Well, what we do is we actually plan what the rover going to do. This is in particular once we drive off. We plan what the rover is going to do for the course of the next Martian day, mm. we call a sol, and send up. We plan that over the Martian night, while the rover's sleeping, we plan where the rover is going to drive and what observations it's going to take and build up an entire set of commands. And then we send that up in the morning on Mars when the rover wakes up and it then performs those commands all day long and then sends us back in the afternoon the results and any images that we had taken so we can now plan the next day. Mm. And so that way we don't have to worry so much about the time delay that uh, right now is uh, a little over 10 minutes in sending a message to Mars.
0: Uh, so what were some of the logistical issues with actually building all these instruments in such a uh, small, compact device then?
2: Well, there's always a number of constraints. One is, is that we have to keep all of the instruments in an appropriate temperature range. The temperatures on Mars can vary by up to 150 degrees Fahrenheit between day and night, and so we can basically freeze our equipment if we're not careful. And so all of this had to be fit into what we call our a warm electronics box that's kind of like a beer cooler but pretty sophisticated to keep everything warm hmm. and so that what happens is when we're we're operating overnight when we have warmed up during the day, during our operations and then we shut down, we slowly cool off overnight, but then by the next morning we're still within an acceptable temperature and then can start operating again. And so that was one of the challenges, was to maintain all these instruments as healthy. The other is just making this entire rover fit into the confines of the lander. And that's why it was all crouched down and everything was folded up so that uh, it would actually fit, which was a pretty major challenge to yeah. make work.
0: Um, I think many people who, who follow the many missions that have gone to Mars have sort of been amazed by the with actually trying to get an uh, actual rover onto the planet, that there have been a number of well-publicized problems with actually landing these things. Is there is there a particular reason why actually getting the rover on, on Mars is difficult?
2: Well, landing on another planet is always difficult. And, for example, the uh, same approach we used for both Pathfinder and this mission, which uh, involves basically barreling into the planet's atmosphere and being slowed down by an aeroshell and and then a supersonic parachute. <laughs> and uh, finally the airbags and, and being dropped to the surface. All of that's a pretty complex series of things that has to take place and has to work. And even if all of that works perfectly, there can always be a nice sharp pointed rock sticking up that we could bounce on and that could deflate our airbags mm. and, and result in damage. It's just a, a very challenging um, set of things that we need to do to land on a planet that's 100 million miles away.
0: When you've written a very fascinating book, Sojourner, which was an insider's view of the uh, Mars Pathfinder mission, I'm just curious why you decided to uh, chronicle the the last rover mission to Mars.
2: Well, I worked Um, for a number of years on that mission, and and it was a very exciting mission, and uh, working with the rover and developing it was also one of the high points of, of my career, having worked on rovers for so many years, and it just seemed like a story worth telling based on how many different people were involved and all of the different contributions. We tend to often look at things after the fact and say, "Oh, it was inevitable that that would all work, and, mm. and it was must have been just very straightforward, this concerted effort for a few years." But the reality was that there were so many different people whose contribution was essential to making the mission work. And I wanted to provide a sense of just how many different people are involved and how each one of them is necessary and does something that uh, that makes the mission succeed. And that without any of them, we wouldn't have gotten on Mars that time and perhaps might not be trying to get to Mars this time.
0: So uh, what were, were your uh, most gratifying moments during this Pathfinder mission?
2: Well, I think of two particular moments. One is just seeing those first images come back. You really see a new place that nobody's seen before, and just being there and watching that happen. There's just nothing like that. The other moments are for me are the ones when problems come up, and I get the chance to dig into them and actually solve something Hmm. and figure out, you know, how to make something work that doesn't seem to be working that's off there on Mars and and seems like it should be too far away to fix, but we find a way. I find those to be just uh, really special times when when I have a chance to use my engineering and and problem-solving abilities. Mm.
0: Have there been any times when uh, you've just been maybe scared that the whole thing wouldn't work out?
2: Well, whenever a landing is coming up, I know, you know, we all have that feeling in the pit of our stomach about whether it's going to work or not, because mm-hmm. there's there's no guarantees, and and like I said, that no matter how perfect the job is done, there's still probably a five or ten percent chance that uh, there might be a rock in the wrong place. So yeah, that's that's one of those places where you kept my fingers crossed and hope to hear a signal, and so far we have. So,
0: um, so uh, whatever happened to Sojourner?
2: Well, what we think happened on the, really the 83rd day on Mars, the rechargeable batteries on the Pathfinder lander finally went dead in the middle of the night, and we think we actually lost our clock so that we didn't really know the time on board enough to know where to point our antenna to communicate. We were not able to recover from that. In the meantime, the Sojourner rover itself was still functioning, but we had no way to communicate with it except through the lander, and what it would have done after a few days of not getting a signal, is would have said, oh, well, maybe I've gotten too far away from the lander to, mm-hmm. to communicate, and it would have basically driven towards the lander and gotten very close to it. It wouldn't have driven up onto the lander, because then it would have probably gotten stuck. So it circled the lander at a range of a couple of meters, hoping forlornly <laughs> to get a new message, which never came.
0: Wow. We'll we'll hope that the uh, Mars Explorer Rover won't suffer such a fate. <laughs> um, so what's what's next for the Explorer Rover and? Uh,
2: well, we'll be driving off. We hope, uh, and uh, and of course. Coming up on, uh, on January 24th, we will be attempting to land the Opportunity rover and basically go through the same thing again, though we think that landing site is going to look uh, rather different and they have sand dunes near the rover and uh, be a very different view. So we've basically got a lot to keep ourselves busy.
0: All right. Well, I think we'll all be uh, watching in eager uh, anticipation what, what comes out of these missions.
2: Uh, well,
0: we're a little out of time, but uh, I just want to thank you uh, very much for joining us today on uh, Berkeley Rocks. Well, thank you very You were just listening to Mr. Andrew Mishkin, a senior systems engineer at the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory, discussing the recent Mars exploration rover and his book Sojourner, an insider's view of the Mars Pathfinder mission. You're listening to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Coming up next, Jimmy Lynn will join us to give us the technology update, so stay tuned.
1: Welcome back to Berkik Rocks and now here's Jimmy Lin with the Weekly Tech Update. Jimmy?
3: Thanks, Frank. I thought this week, since you guys have talked about Macworld, that I would talk a little bit about the consumer electronics show in uh, Las Vegas, which occurred at the same time as Macworld. Mm -hmm.
1: The other big show, right? The
3: other big show. And since it's big, you know, I won't have time to go into it too in depth. So I thought I would talk about the announcements that Microsoft and Hewlett Packard made at CES. Right. And the announcements that Microsoft made, I think are interesting because they provide a counter point to what Apple did at Macworld. Mm-hmm. So Apple introduced the iPod Mini at Macworld and what Microsoft did was they announced a set of product types to work with uh, Windows Media. Uh So, you know, video, audio, and so on. And so currently, they have a version of Windows XP called Windows XP Media Center Edition. And various computer companies like Hewlett Packard are selling what are called Media Center PCs. So these PCs are designed to not only act as normal PCs, but they can record video from TVs. And uh, they also have a simplified interface that you can control with a remote control and you can aim it at the PC and then bring up a screen to play your music, to play video, to play recorded video, and and so on.
1: Oh, I see. So you have your little uh, TV recorder with you where you go then.
3: For the PC, right? Uh So basically you would have TiVo-like functionality on your PC. And so one of the problems is that people don't really put their PCs in their living room. Mm Mm-hmm and most of the media center PCs that have been released so far look like PCs and, you know, people like to put their, you know, home entertainment system, their stereo, their TV and so on in their living room and a PC looks kind of out of place. Plus, if you only have you know, one PC, your Media Center PC, then, you know, sometimes, you know, you need to do work or you're about to surf the web. Mm -hmm. And, but then if someone else wants to watch a video that they recorded on the PC, they can't watch it at the same time you're using the PC. That's true. So what Microsoft has done has, they've announced, Three new classes of media center device. Mm -hmm. So one of them is called Windows Media Center Extender. Mm -hmm. So the idea behind these is it would be it would be a box maybe the size of a stereo component, Mm -hmm. and the idea is that you would put it on your rack just like your other stereo components. But this would hook up to your media center PC wherever it is in the home, you Mm -hmm. know, through a wired or wireless network, and that way now you can access your music and your videos through the extender while someone. Someone else is using the PC at the same time to possibly do other things.
1: So you have a centralized PC system for your home to do entertainment and work.
3: Right. So so your PC basically acts as the hub. Mm -hmm. And then the the media center extender acts as basically another way to access your video and your audio, your media on your PC. So you don't have to be next to the PC. And so now two people can access the stuff on the PC's hard drive without conflict. Along the same lines, they also announced an Xbox Media Center extender. Mm -hmm. So the idea here is if you have an Xbox in your living room and then a Media Center PC, say, in, in the family room, then now your Xbox can hook up to your Media Center PC and then play your media. Oh, cool. And, you know, lots of people have been expecting something like this for a while, Mm -hmm. that Microsoft released the Xbox so that they could get a device into the living room. And so that would prevent a company like, say, Sony from completely taking over the living room.
1: Oh, so it's like a little Trojan horse then.
3: Basically, yeah. And it's because, you know, the Sony PlayStation 2 plays DVDs. And so, you know, Microsoft saw that this was an opportunity they didn't want to lose. And then finally, and this is most related to the iPod, they announced a class of device called Portable Media Center. Mm-hmm. And so these will be, you know, portable devices roughly the size of an iPod or a PDA. Mm-hmm. They'll probably be bigger because not only are they portable audio devices, they're also portable video devices. Oh, I see. So you'll be able to store and watch your videos on this portable device. So, you know, you can take it on a plane and instead of watching the movie that the airplane is showing, you can watch your own movies. Right. And so I believe that the audio and the video put onto these devices would also be from a media center PC or any other PC. And at a higher level, you know, Microsoft is doing this to push their Windows Media audio and video formats Mm -hmm. which are different than what Apple is doing with their iPod. You know, Apple uses different formats than Microsoft Microsoft, And so there's also a format war kind of underlying all of this. Oh, I see. And then finally, um, I, I mentioned that Hewlett-Packard also made an announcement at CES. Uh-huh. And this is pretty stunning. They announced that they are going to be reselling a version of Apple's iPod. So they are not using Microsoft's technology in their portable audio player, mm-hmm. they will use Apple's. And unlike Apple's iPod, or HP's player will be colored blue.
1: Oh, a blue pod then. Uh,
3: so you, that's right, but other than that, it will behave exactly the same. Oh, and I see. Apparently, when you turn it on, you will actually see an Apple logo, <laughs> but on the outside of the device, it just says HP. I see. This is, you know, an interesting twist, because Dell came out with their own media player, and they use Microsoft's media formats. Uh And HP apparently was trying to come up with their own music player and decided that they couldn't come up with anything better than Apple's iPod, so they licensed it instead.
1: Okay, Jimmy, I guess we're a little bit out of time, so I just want to thank you for joining us this week. Okay, thank you. Yeah, welcome back, and
0: uh, now it's time for the answer to last week's question of the week. What is a prion? Well, it's not a virus, it's not DNA, it's just proteins. But the proteins are very strange, because they exist in two forms. There's a soluble form, and a very bad insoluble form. The insoluble forms can turn the soluble forms into insoluble forms, and then you form these plaques, these plaques exist in the, the brain, and they take up space, and they create all kinds of havoc. And that is the interesting thing about the prion.
1: Okay, and now here's a Tokyo Kid with this week's question of the week. How much air do you breathe every day? Uh, If you know the answer or just think you know the answer, email us at Grox at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but at least you know you're not full of hot air. And that's all for this week's
0: edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology.
1: If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com.
0: For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Katie.